would stand for the reading of the Word of God, John chapter number 11, verse 43 through 45 to start, and we'll be looking at the rest of the chapter here this evening. The Bible says, and when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, or rather cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary, and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. title of the sermon this evening is this, How People Respond to Miracles. Jesus did a lot of miracles when he was on earth, and I believe Jesus is still doing miracles today. How do people respond to miracles? Let's pray tonight. Help us, Lord, to understand the passage, and Lord, all of the truths that are contained uh, within. And Lord God, guide us this evening, our thoughts and our minds. Help us, Lord, to be focused in on what the Word of God says, and help us to leave here with a better understanding of truth, and then, Lord, with more freedom as a result. We love you, Lord. Thank you for the cross of Calvary. Thank you where you shed your blood for us. Thank you that you have made it a way for us to have uh, a clean heart and a pure relationship with you. Lord, we're thankful for all that took place, and, Lord, all that is taking place in our lives day to day. May we walk with you. Lord God, may we appreciate the passage before us this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Seated. Have you ever witnessed a miracle firsthand where it happened right in front of you? Um, While I have no doubt that the spectacular miracles still happen, uh, few see miracles like the ones that Jesus performed during his lifetime. I have never heard, for instance, in my entire life, I have never heard of someone being raised from the dead. Never heard of that one, all right? Sometimes we hear of people who are miraculously healed of cancer. We have one of those people in attendance tonight, Brother Vara back here, miraculously healed of cancer, and family was making plans for him to go on to heaven, and God decided it wasn't yet his time. And Praise God for that. There's no question that Brother Vara's healing was a miracle. Sometimes we hear of God moving in people's hearts uh, where a need has been kept very private. Uh, I, uh, my pastor, Pastor King, shares the story of uh, having no food and having three children and no food and uh, them uh, riding around town and needing um, something to eat. And uh, this is back long, many years ago. And so they pulled into a gas station and sat there and they held hands as a family. And they prayed that God would get them some groceries because they did not have the funds for those groceries. And lo and behold, as they went around the car and the five of them prayed, they pulled up to their doorstep and there were groceries sitting on the front doorstep. Someone had driven an hour and a half and put a full load of groceries right there on their doorstep, never even being told by any human that there was a need there. When asked about it, they just said, well, I was grocery shopping, and I felt God say to me, load the car up with groceries and take them to the king's residence and drop them off. That is a miracle. That is a miracle. Sometimes a financial need is met, and the only logical explanation is the hand of God at work in the background. Pastor Brown has shared stories about needing funds to 
cover expenses early on in the founding of this church only to go to his P.O. box down at the Stratford Post Office and find a check from someone on the other side of the globe who had no idea there was a need. That is a miracle. Now, miracles are sensational, especially the ones that Jesus performed. Uh, can you imagine being present in the wedding at Cana and seeing a pot of water right before your eyes be turned into wine? Can you imagine what that must have been like to be the one that drew that cup of water out and took it to the governor of the feast and see his face light up as he declares, you have saved the best for last. Can you imagine being present there on this, that Sabbath day where Jesus walks into Jerusalem with his disciples and there by the pool of Bethesda lays a man who is paralytic and Jesus asks him, wilt thou be made whole? And then takes him by the hand and you watch this man who for 38 years has been sitting by this pool paralyzed, stand up, roll up his bed and walk away. Can you imagine being amongst the crowds where Jesus was walking past Jericho only to hear his name? called out and others tell him to hush and uh, uh, he calls out uh, Jesus son of, of, of David have mercy on me and to see Jesus come over to Bartimaeus and ask him what he wants and he says to be given his sight and Bartimaeus go running down the street having been given back his sight for the first time ever and then here in John 11 Jesus walks up to a graveyard and calls out to that tombstone, Lazarus, come forth. And a man who you know has been dead and buried for four days comes out of that tombstone in grave clothes, bound in grave clothes. Imagine what that must have been like to see that firsthand. Now, to many of you, it may seem rather obvious that if someone were to perform a miracle or miracles of this nature, then people would listen to what that person has to say and would instantly believe him. If I was walking through uh, Stratford here and a, a nomad came walking up with a group of people and started instantly doing these miracles that are, we're discussing here, boy, he'd have my attention. How many of you are with me tonight? He'd have my attention and uh, to me, it may seem obvious, but this is not always the case. In fact, Jesus rebuked religious leaders because uh, they would ask him to do more miracles, as if the miracles he did were not enough. Remember John chapter number 6, where Jesus takes the five loaves and two fishes and he feeds the masses only the next day to be ordered by them to prove he is who he claims and do it again. Do it again. It was never going to be enough. Turn over to Matthew chapter 12 for me this evening. Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 39. You see, people who have an appetite for miracles only want more and more and won't be pleased unless they can keep seeing them performed over and over and over again. Matthew 12 and verse 39. Jesus is teaching here as people are asking him for a sign to prove he is who he says he is. As if he's just supposed to, you know, do miracles on demand. He says, the Bible says, but he answered and said unto them, Matthew 12, 29, 39 rather, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign and there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. Well, what's the sign of the prophet Jonas? Well, just as Jonas was in the belly of the well three days and three nights, Jesus was going to be in the earth and would rise again. He said, you all are looking for some sign. You are evil for wanting 
that sign. Um, Listen, is it wrong to be excited over a miracle? Oh, it is absolutely not wrong to be excited over a miracle. I can remember the news that Brother Vara was getting better. Shortly after I became the pastor, he's going through this great battle. And I can remember getting the news that he was getting better. And uh, the excitement over the miracle that God was working in the Vara family and in their home. And I, I remember the joy that was there. But my faith in God did not rest upon whether or not God brought Brother Vara back from cancer. If, if God had decided to take Brother Michael on home to heaven, my faith in God would have been the same. What it comes down to is when we say, I need a miracle to continue to believe in you, or I need a miracle to believe in you. There was a young man uh, attending Bible college, and he was dating a young lady, and everyone could see that this relationship was just going to be a disaster. And so his roommates and his friends and even some of the college staff told him, you need to break it off with this young lady, but as is the case with a lot of young men, he had fallen in love with her and just did not want to break it off. And so he said, I'm going to give God uh, a chance to tell me to break it off. And so he took a napkin, or rather he took a, a cloth, and he laid it in the middle of the church parking, or the, the college parking lot there, of the dorms, and he said, uh, God, he said, if this rag is wet tomorrow morning when I come out, then uh, I will know you want me to continue to date this girl. Well, it was forecasted 100% rain for that evening. This is a true story. 100% chance of rain that evening. It was a summer vacation, and very few folks were staying in the dorms, and that was a parking lot that was not regularly used. And so the probability that that rag would be wet in the morning was extremely high. Well, as the story goes, a car pulled into the parking lot, and one car parked in that parking lot that night and parked right over the top of his uh, towel there that he left in, in the parking lot. And the next morning when he came out, that car had pulled away, and it had stopped raining. And so there was one dry square on the parking lot, and it was that towel. You say, well, did he break it off with her? He did not break it off with her. He continued to date her. And does that surprise anybody here? He, he, he wanted what he wanted, and he was going to justify it any way he could. And you see, when we want a miracle uh, in order for God to prove himself to us, we're coming at this thing all wrong. We're coming at this thing all wrong. Why did Jesus perform miracles? This is such an important part of my introduction. Why did Jesus perform miracles? Did he need to do them so that he could be validated? No. He did not perform miracles to be Jesus. He performed miracles because he was Jesus. He was the Messiah. He was the Christ. This is not something he did to become the Christ. This is something that he did uh, because he was Christ. Uh, for me and you, it's like saying that, well, you know, uh, I, I need to breathe to prove I'm human. No, you breathe because you are human. And Jesus did miracles, and it was as natural for him to perform these miracles in his ministry as it is for me and you to breathe air in and out of our lungs. And Jesus did, did these miracles, and as a result, many people did come to him. What happens when people see miracles, do they all believe when someone is brought back to life right before their eyes? 
Do they believe when a, uh, a someone who is born blind, as is the case, and I believe that was John 9, uh, someone who's born blind is, is, is given their sight, and it happens right in front of them, do, do, do everyone believe? Well, unfortunately, no. There are those who are so hard-hearted, they reject anyway. I propose that God wants your heart of faith, whether he gives you a miracle or not. I know that I have at times in my life gone into my prayer closet and, and I've asked God for some big things and I've claimed some pretty strong language out of the Bible and I've said to God, I, I need you to do this for me. I want you to do this for me. And, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm claiming this promise right here. And, and this is on the level of a miracle that I'm going to need you to pull this off. I, I know when my grandmother was sick, she was going into surgery and... Uh, she, to my knowledge, was not saved, and I prayed going into that surgery that God would keep her alive until she got saved. And uh, Matthew was just a matter of weeks old, months old, and uh, just wanted her to believe and become a Christian. And lo and behold, she uh, she died in that surgery. Well, it would have been, a, now that I know all the details of how sick she was, it would have been a miracle for God to keep her alive. Does God need to do a miracle for me in order to believe in Him? Does God need to do a miracle for you? To believe in Him, our faith should be in God whether or not we receive a miracle. Faith does not require that God reveals everything to you all at once. Faith chooses to continue moving forward, trusting even when God isn't showing you a miracle. Those who need a miracle, hear me now, hear what I'm about to say. Those who need a miracle to believe will continue to need a miracle to believe. Those who need a miracle to believe will continue to need more miracles to believe. They will always need that, be that need of that stimuli over and over and over again. Faith chooses uh, to believe without the miracle. Those who can read the Bible and just simply trust that God is working in the background of, the, of their lives, with their, their faith will last a lifetime. So let's look at this passage in great detail here. With that as the introduction, let's jump into John 11 and let's see here how people respond to miracles. Number one tonight, notice the crowd's response to the miracle. The crowd's response to the miracle. Letter A, many believed. Many believed. Look at John 11 and look at verse 43 again. And when he had, and when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, Come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Now, uh, before we read verse 45, here's how I imagine this happening. Jesus cries out, Lazarus, come forth. There's a large crowd there to help Mary Martha uh, weep over Lazarus. And uh, here comes Jesus, or rather, here comes Lazarus out of that tomb. How did he walk out with his grave clothes on? Well, uh, just to be honest, it was probably pretty awkward for Lazarus. They had him wrapped up like a mummy. And I don't know if he just kind of did one of these right here, where he just kind of slowly made his way out, or maybe as my Sunday school teacher had said growing up, maybe he just floated out. I, we have no idea how we got out, but there he is standing there wrapped in grave clothes with uh, no ability to see anything, no ability to do anything, and everyone is, is, is hysterically happy, celebrating and shouting, running around, and Jesus says, hey, hey, Take the grave clothes off of them, right? That, let them let them loose. Let them be loose. And oh yeah, we, we we forgot to do that part. They ran over and unbound him. Look at forty-five. Then many of the Jews, which came to Mary 
and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. Now, this follows a pattern throughout the book of John. As people throughout John's gospel uh, take an objective look at Jesus, they come to a point of belief. Turn over to John 4 and verse 39. John 4 verse 39. The Bible says, beginning in 39, there are many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified. He told me of all of all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. And he abode there two days and, and many more believed because of his own word and said unto the woman. Now we believe not because of thy saying, for we heard him ourselves And now that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now, there have been many occasions where I have come along someone's side who was lost and and, uh, not a believer. And I have taken and I've said, let me tell you what Jesus did for you. And gone through the whole gospel presentation. What is the gospel presentation? Well, just simply, it's the death and burial and resurrection of Christ on my behalf and on your behalf. Aren't you glad that Jesus lived for you, he died for you, he rose from the dead for you, and he's alive forevermore? Aren't you glad for that tonight? Isn't that great news? Amen? Hey, don't ever let that get old. That's a big deal. The fact that the king of the universe came down and humbled himself and lived for us and then died for us and arose for us and is alive forevermore. And there have been many instances where I've come along someone's side and I've shared with them that story of, of, of the gospel message, and I've seen tears well up in their eyes based on what I share with them, and they bow their head and they get saved. And then there are other times where I'll give the gospel to someone, and they sit there and they listen with a very analytical mind and a very uh, analytical uh, heart, and they're intense, intensely listening to everything I say, and there's no emotional response at the end. Instead, they just kind of sit there and go, hmm. That's interesting. Let me look into that. I see this woman go running into Samaritan, uh, Samaria, and she says, let me tell you about the man who just changed my life. Let me tell you about the man who saved my soul. And, and, and there are people who instantly hear her testimony and believe. And then there are others who go, hmm, I need to see that for myself. And they go running out of town and they uh, ask Jesus if he can stay a few more days. And As I have given the gospel to people, I have seen some people who begin to do their own investigation and looking into the resurrection of Christ and looking into the validity of Jesus and is the gospel message actually true, but they come to a conclusion whether they take my word for it or they do their own work, work, they come to the conclusion that Jesus is the, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and those who come to Christ object. Objectively, uh, will end up eventually believing in him. Look at John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 28. Here Jesus is in a lengthy back and forth with the Pharisees. And uh, there is a, a heated discussion going on between the two of them there in the treasury of the temple. John eight twenty-eight. then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man... Then ye shall know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. 
The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please Him. And He spake these words, as He spake these words, many believed on Him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on Him, If ye continue in My word, then are ye My disciples indeed. We looked at 32 this morning, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And so here Jesus is telling them, one day you're going to lift me up, signifying one day you're going to put me up on a cross to die. You're going to have me crucified, and when you do, you're going to elevate me to a place where I'm able to save the world. And there were many there who heard the wisdom and words of Jesus and had seen his ministry, and they heard the authenticity of who he was. And here in this passage, he's being accused of being a devil and of uh, of, uh, his father being the devil. And he defends himself well enough to where many there turn and believe in him For salvation, believing in Jesus for salvation is not a blind trust. I've heard people mock Christianity and they'll say things, well, if you had been taught uh, Jack and the Beanstalk and uh, all of the uh, fairy tales that uh, uh, we hear growing up instead of the Bible, you're gullible enough as a Christian where you would have just believed those. The only reason why you believe uh, the stories of the Bible is because you were told them as a child and you're very gullible. How many of you have heard that line of reasoning at some point? The reality is that that's a bunch of hooey. That's that's a bunch of silliness. Uh, God does not uh, ask us to just close our eyes and take a blind leap of faith. No, if you take the time and actually look at the historical record of the Bible and you're actually critical uh, toward the accounts of Scripture and lining them up against history and lining them up against the archaeological digs and lining them up against the accounts of other historians, uh, if you take the time to do the work. There is enough there. Uh, Now, let's say that a a blind leap would be saying, I'm just going to jump over the Grand Canyon. That would be silliness. Rather, this is not jumping over the Grand Canyon. This is stepping over the stones one at a time that takes you across the river. It is still faith because there's still an element of us exercising belief in something that we did not see or something that we did not hear. But this is not a blind leap of faith into something that's a fairy tale. Uh, What miracle have you seen God do in and around you? Have you given your heart totally to Jesus? Have you truly, truly believed in Him? Letter A, many believe. Letter B, some were busybodies. Some were busybodies. Now this is fascinating, and I think probably John wrote this with great sadness of heart. I'm sure he would have liked to have written that all who were there Believed, but there were those there who did not believe. Look at John 11 and look at verse 46. But some of them went their way to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Now, I just can't quite fathom this. There were those who were there to comfort Mary and Martha and very well knew that Lazarus had been dead. And they watched Jesus raise Lazarus back to life. And instead of going, unbelievable, I've been wrong about this guy the whole time, or I was on the fence about this guy, but this settles it for me. I'm all in on Team Jesus. Instead of doing that, they they ran to the Pharisees and they tattled on Jesus, tattled on Jesus for what he had done. But this also follows a pattern. Go back to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 and verse 35. John 8 verse 35. 
The Bible says, And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be freed indeed. I know that you're Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me. I'm actually in the wrong passage. All right, I, I put the wrong passage. When I was, look at John chapter 9. I'm one chapter off. John chapter 9 and verse 35. Um, this is the story where Jesus heals the blind man. The blind man goes into the synagogue, and the leaders of the synagogue banned him from the synagogue because he declares the man who healed him to be a good man. Now, again, not to re-preach the sermon from this passage from a couple months ago, but if you had been born blind and your whole life was that of a beggar, and then someone comes along who you don't know and puts clay on your eyes and you wash that clay off and now you can see, I think you're going to be a big fan of the guy. I think you're probably going to think he's a good person. And as soon as he's made to see within just hours, he's being drugged in the synagogue and being told to denounce the guy that just healed him. And he said, no, I'm not going to denounce the guy. He gave me my sight back. And so what is his reward for defending the man who healed him? They kick him out of the synagogue and label him as a publican and a sinner. So Jesus finds this man afterwards. And look at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him. And it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. All right. How many of you here have ever tried to have an intimate conversation with somebody, only to have a, uh, a busybody snoop around the corner and ruin the moment? If you're an older sibling in here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. All right. Maybe you had a girlfriend when you were a teenager and your boyfriend when you were a teenager girls and you're trying to have an intimate conversation with someone you care about, only to have a brother or sister that has a cup up to the door and uh, snooping around it, ooh, snooping around the corner there. Maybe if you're a parent here, you know what I'm talking about because you're trying to have a private conversation with your spouse, only to have little ears right around the corner listening to everything you say. And before you get all upset about that, you probably did it to your parents too when you were little. And so here Jesus is trying to have a moment, uh, an intimate moment where he saves this man's soul. But the Pharisees have spies that are lurking right around the corner. Look at verse 39. Or verse, uh, yeah, verse 39. And Jesus said, for judgment, I think I missed my, my, missed my spot here. Uh, let's see. Who is he, Lord? I mean, I suppose. Oh, verse 38. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I am coming to the world that they uh, which see not might see. And that they which uh, see might be made blind. All right. Verse 40. And some of the Pharisees, here they are, eavesdropping. Uh, some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus saith unto them, If you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remaineth. Now somewhere along the line, those Jews that were at Lazarus's graveside that would reject and go be a bunch of busybody tattletales, uh, somewhere along the line, they had seen Jesus do a lesser, uh, a spectacular miracle, and they had rejected. And they had rejected. And even though it had been made a greater miracle, they had already made their choice to reject Jesus. Did you know that one day during the tribulation, things are going to get so bad here on earth that God is going to have the angels write the message of salvation in the sky. Imagine that you're a lost person 
And you've heard the gospel and you've rejected. And you've heard the gospel and you've rejected. And you've heard the gospel and you've rejected. And you walk outside and there's an angel up in the sky writing the gospel message out. You say, well, surely that'll be enough uh, for people to believe. No, the Bible tells us even though they will see it written in the sky as a miracle, they still will choose not to believe. There's a pattern here. Those who uh, have a tender heart and are drawn to God believe. Those who choose to reject, reject and reject and reject. Now, um, imagine living in the time of Jesus and knowing firsthand that he had done these miracles and instead of believing in him, you choose to reject him. Do people still do this today? Do people reject miracles today? And I would say, of course they do. How many of you here have ever seen or been around birth on any level, whether it's an animal or a human, uh, when that took place? Would you raise your hand? You know, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. The whole process of how a baby is developed in the womb is a miracle. You're taking a single cell and that thing is growing and growing and growing and, and duplicating and duplicating and duplicating until it's a, it is a, a human being with fingers and toes and fingernails and toenails and eyelashes and, 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 and develops a, an identity that's, that's unique all to itself. And, and here comes that child into this world. And if you've ever been in the room when birth has happened, you know you have just witnessed an absolute miracle. And yet people see this and they claim that all of this is just part of the evolutionary process that there is no God. How about the miracle of creation? I, 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 I got to tell you, the further you get uh, away from the city, the less atheists that you find. The more you get out into the country where people do uh, agricultural work, the more people that you find that believe in the Lord. And uh, there's a, 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 there just seems to be an intensity of atheists where there's an intensity of people. There seems to be a, a, a diminishing of atheism where you have a diminishing of, of density of people. And, and why? Because people who work out in the fields, they know that there is a creator who created all that. You watch the seasons and you watch the, how the earth works and you cannot get away from creation. You, rather, you cannot get deep into creation without giving credence to the fact that where there is this marvelous creation, there must be a creator. I was driving down uh, the Merritt Parkway some years ago and I, I looked and saw what had to have been the ugliest tree I've ever seen in my life. And, and then I realized it wasn't a tree. It was a cell phone tower with branches. How many of you ever seen that thing going down 15? That thing is ugly. And it, and it, it uh, hit me, you know, that man, men try to create what God creates. They'll never come close. They'll never come close. No one has ever invented a tree from scratch. No one has ever invented uh, any of these things from scratch. Only God can create His creation. And every day we look at creation, we are seeing a miracle. How about the miracle of the functionality of the human brain? Isn't it amazing how our brains work? Isn't it amazing how we can problem solve? Here humans have been trying to invent some element, and they call it artificial intelligence. And Even the best artificial intelligence machines out there right now are very limited in scope what they can do. But after all of the work and all of the research and all of the effort and all of the billions of dollars that have been poured into this, these machines cannot even come close 
to what the human brain is able to do. And God just took his fingers and in just a few short minutes made the human body, including our very brain. You can see someone you haven't seen in 30 years and instantly remember their name. Uh, you can be taught a skill and practice it for just a few short minutes like riding a bike and do, do it for a season of life, leave it for decades and go right back to being able to ride a bike. The human brain is a miracle all in and of itself. These are things that we can understand, but we do not totally know how they come about. And uh, we can understand them because we can observe them, but we cannot in any way duplicate them. Uh, how does the sun rise and set with great such great pattern and perfection day after day, season after season, and year after year? We can observe it, but we surely cannot explain it. How does a baby go from one cell to multiple cells and then into a fully developed human body inside of, uh, of the mother? Uh, we can observe it, but we cannot totally explain it. Birth is a miracle every time it happens. How does the human brain manage so much information as well as be creative and then be caring and loving and the problem-solving skills? Again, we can observe it, but we cannot duplicate it or totally explain it. These events and miracles, they point back to an almighty God. Yet even with these daily miracles right in front of us, people still choose to reject that God is real and that He exists. Number one, number one the crowd's response to the miracles. Number two, we see Caiaphas' ration, Caiaphas's rationale to their problems. Look at John 11 with me and look at verse number 47. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. These verses are a stark confession on their behalf of a handful of things. Here is the first time I can find in Scripture that these Pharisees admit that Jesus could do miracles. What a confession. They're admitting that this Jesus is capable of miracles. Number two, they are, uh, another uh, stark confession. His miracles were worthy of all men believing. Notice what it says there. If he keeps doing this, eventually all men will believe. And if he keeps on this pattern, we're going to lose all of our followers. They're going to leave us and they're going to go and follow him. Now, what I would have said if I could have been there and been the antagonist in their conversation is I would have said, well, if all men would leave and believe him, then maybe he is to be believed. Amen. Number three, third observation here, third confession I see. They were in this thing for money and power. And didn't want the Romans taking that from them. Uh, Israel's identity was wrapped up in this temple. And Israel's identity was wrapped up in their priest and in their Torah. And if Jesus came along and everyone believed in him, Rome very easily could come in and take away their power and their money. They were in this thing for the wrong reasons. And they, if you read between the lines, are just about admitting such. So Caiaphas... 
He was um, one of the newly elected Sadducees to the position of high priest. Uh, he steps up and he shares his thoughts. Letter A, we see Caiaphas's prophecy, his prophecy. Look at verse 49. And these words have a double meaning, the one that Caiaphas meant and the one that, uh, that uh, is prophetic in nature. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that uh, it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. What he is trying, uh, what he is saying is that it is better for Jesus to die than that Rome would swoop in and shut down their temple worship and strip them of their national identity. Look at verse 51. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. But what Caiaphas failed to understand is that his words would come true, but just in a very, very different way. What you see is that Jesus would die for the people of Israel. And he would also die for the rest of humanity, not so that their religion, their dead religion could be saved, but so that their souls could be saved. John would later write in his epistle, 1 John 2 verse 2, speaking of Jesus, and he is the propitiation or substitute for our sins. And not for our sins only, not for ours only rather, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus did not just come to die for a few select Israelites. Jesus did not just come to die for the nation of Israel. Jesus did not just come to die for a handful of people scattered around the globe. No, Jesus came to die for the sins of the whole world. Aren't you glad that Jesus died for your sins? Aren't you glad that He hung on that tree and He willingly laid down His life for us to be saved? Here Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus must die for the people, and Jesus did indeed die for the people. Letter A, we see his prophecy. Letter B, we see his plots. Look down at verse 53 of John chapter number 11. The Bible says, And from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. In their meeting of the minds, they decided that day, that Jesus would indeed die. This is the first time that that decision was not an emotional one, but a rational one. This is the first time they came together and decided, together, we're going to look for our window of opportunity to have him killed. He's gone from being a nuisance to someone who must be eliminated. But they would not do that right away. They would wait for the right opportunity to have him put to death. We see uh, here, uh, we see, uh, let's see, we see his plot, we see his prophecy, we see the, the Caiaphas' rationale to their problem. Number three, lastly, we see Christ's retirement to the wilderness. Christ's retirement to the wilderness. Look at John chapter number 11 with me and look at verse number 54. The Bible says, Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence unto a country near to the wilderness, and to a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. Now, this council that took place, or these people leaving the graveside and going and tattling to 
uh, the um, Pharisees, the uh, uh, Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin, this did not catch Jesus off guard, did not surprise him. He knew all along that they wanted him dead. This was part of the Father's ultimate plan. But Christ needed to wait for the right time. Now, very important, very important. Jesus did not die because the Pharisees made a decision to kill him. Jesus did not die because Judas betrayed him. Jesus did not die because they found him in the Garden of Gethsemane there on the Mount of Olives. Jesus did not die because of, of, of the events that led up to this. Jesus died because he willingly laid down his life on his timetable to be killed. This was his choice to do so. And uh, Jesus wanted to die earlier. He could have walked right in Jerusalem and turned himself over. But instead, it was not yet time. And so he retired into the wilderness. All part of the Father's ultimate plan. But Christ needed to wait for the right time to be captured and put to death. Notice that when people reject the miracles of Jesus, they can quickly become hostile to the name of Christ and the cause of Christ. Uh, I've known many people who hate Christianity. They hate it, they hate it, and they hate it. And the more evidence you provide them, the deeper their hate becomes. So Jesus came out of the wilderness to heal Lazarus, and now he's gone right back into the wilderness. Letter A, we see the people's curiosity. The people's curiosity. Look with me at John 11, verse 55. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus, and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, What think ye that he will not come to the feast? So I looked into this time of purification, and I had a hard time coming up with anything concrete. But it would seem that uh, at Passover, uh, if you had done anything that would have uh, needed ritual cleansing, and there were always reasons to need ritual cleansing. If you had touched a body fluid of some sort or uh, uh, you, uh, you had been in contact with blood in any way, and there were a handful of other ritualistic reasons why you would need purification uh, or, or cleansing. And here uh, these folks were coming into town early to make sure they were purified and ready, uh, uh, ceremonially ready for the Passover. And folks are beginning to gather into the temple. They're beginning to come into town. And what is the talk around the water cooler, if you will? What is the talk around the temple building? The question is, will Jesus even show up or not? Is he going to come into such a hostile environment as a Jewish man and celebrate the Passover as was ritualistically expected of him? Letter B, we see the priest's commandment, the priest's commandment. Look at John 11 and look at verse 57. The Bible says, Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees have given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they might take him. So now word is from the religious high order, if you know where Jesus is, he is the most wanted man in Israel. He's the most wanted man in Jerusalem. Uh, the word is out. It is official. This hostility between Jesus and the Pharisees has become official. They want him arrested and they want him killed. Uh, tension building. And so now there was no denying the religious hypocrites would have their encounter with Jesus. Things were very soon coming to a head. So what are the takeaways from the sermon this evening? Let me just give you 
four I have scribbled down on my notes. These will not be on the screen, and if you're encouraged to write them down, uh, some of them are lengthy, so you can summarize them your own way. But the first one I would say, first conclusion from the sermon this evening would be this. Be aware, be aware of the miracles that take place around you. Be aware of the miracles that take place around you. Be aware of it. Keep an eye open for it. Every morning when you go outside and you see the sun coming over the horizon and birds that fly by and you understand the complexity of our uh, uh, ecosystem, our solar system, uh, you're, you're aware of the complexity of the creation, understand that that is a miracle. That is a miracle that you have gotten to behold, had a chance to behold your whole life. Understand that Anytime you hear that a woman is given birth and that the baby and mom and baby are healthy and happy, that is a miracle. That is a miracle. Understand that anytime a human being invents something new, that is a miracle because God gave them a brain to do something. Those things cannot be replicated. Anytime you hear of someone being healed of cancer or someone who is blind who now is able to see, uh, anytime you hear of these things happening, these are miracles and be aware that they are around you. And by the way, there are many other miracles. And I think a lot of this just comes around to how you define the word miracle, how you define the word miracle. Some people would define a miracle as something extra spectacular, like someone being raised from the dead. But to me, a miracle is some, anything that happens that only God is capable of doing. Anything that happens that only God is capable of doing. Anything that God does that man can't do is a miracle. Some of these things we witness on a daily basis or on a regular basis. Others of them are more sporadic. My second takeaway from the passage this evening is let these miracles increase your faith in God. Let these miracles increase your faith in God. Anytime that I go on a walk or any time that I look at uh, nature and I look at God's creation, what I see is the hand of a mighty God and my faith in Him greatly increases. I love to pray out in nature. I love to pray out in nature. Occasionally I'll take a trip to Vermont in the middle of nowhere, which the entire state of Vermont is in the middle of nowhere. Amen? And uh, I get up in Vermont and I'll... Uh, I'll uh, go outside in the evening and I'll look up into the sky and the, oh, the, the palette of stars that can be beheld, the pattern of stars that uh, one can see and observe. And, and uh, I just stand there and I'm in awe. I'm in awe at that God who created that, how that He loves me. And I think about David's psalm where he said, when I consider the heavens, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man? That thou art mindful of him, and the Son of Man that thou considerest him. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. And as I observe these miracles that take place, my faith in God grows. Understand that I don't need a miracle to believe. But when I observe them, boy, my faith in God grows stronger. My third takeaway from the passage this evening is this. Let your faith lead you to see miracles and not the other way around. Let your faith lead you to see miracles and not the other way around. It ought not be that you need miracles to have faith. It ought to be because you have faith, you're able to see miracles, the hand of God. When I was a teenager, there was a lady in my life named Diane. Diane was a, a, a single woman in her 40s and... She was a little socially awkward, but she was involved in helping to drive me around 
to visit my bus route. And uh, one of the things that used to drive me crazy about Diane is that everything that happened, she would credit to God. Everything. You know, uh, I'd throw a piece of trash and it missed the trash can. And she'd say, well, you know, if God was on your side, you'd have made it in the trash can. Or uh, God had a reason for you missing that trash can. You know, a fly would land on somebody's head and she would, well, God had a reason for that. I mean, everything that happened, she brought God into it. And, and I would get to a place as a 16-year-old boy where I'd just roll my eyes. And I'd say, Miss Diane, quit bringing God into everything. And now that I get older, I find myself bringing God into more into more things. And, and I can now look back at that and say, she did not need a miracle to have faith. By her faith, she could see God in everything, in everything. And I would say tonight that if your faith will grow strong, what you're going to find is there's going to be a lot and lot less uh, coincidences. You know what I think coincidences are? They're the hand of God miraculously working in the background. And you begin to see these things happen. It's really quite something. You know what I think is a miracle that happened for me this week? I think it's a miracle that I got, a, got on a plane in the middle of uh, a remote village or remote, a remote area in Peru where there were only two English speakers in the entire plane likely and we sat right next to each other where one of them was looking for God, trying to find him, and God put him right next to me on the plane. To me, that's a miracle. I don't need to explain that away as a coincidence. I believe that God put Oscar right next to me and had him inquire about salvation so that uh, he could uh, uh, continue to find his way toward the Lord. And when you have faith, that's going to lead you to see more and more miracles around you instead of needing to see miracles to have faith. My fourth observation or takeaway from the passage this evening is this. God simply wants your heart. He wants you to believe in him and in him alone. That's what all this is about. That's what all this is about. When, when Jesus sets back and lets Lazarus die, and does not travel into Bethany, but just lets him die. And then waits out the time for him to die. And then picks up and goes. God is letting a tragedy take place in this family so that he can raise him from the dead. Why? So that many would believe. And God will let tragedy happen occasionally in my life or in your life. And so that he can do a miracle along the way so that many will believe. And I'd say to you this evening is that God wants your heart. He wants your heart above all he wants you to believe in him and in him alone and so this evening as we consider this question of uh, what people do with miracles the question is this what will you do with the miracles around you will you allow those miracles that happen on a daily basis in your life will you allow them to increase your faith or will you yawn and ignore them outright and just let them go on by one at a time may god help our faith to increase. May God help our belief in Him to grow stronger and stronger. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this evening. Lord God, I pray tonight as we examine our own hearts, Lord, familiarity can oftentimes breed a indifference in us toward those spectacular things that we have seen since birth. And Lord God, our, our faith can grow weak and dim. Help us, Lord, tonight to be people who see the miracles around us. And, Lord, have our faith increase little by little by little. And may we become men and women of incredible faith in you. Thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for how it's spoken to my heart. I pray that you've used it in the hearts of many others this evening. Lord God, I have conveyed the truth. And, Holy Spirit, I ask that you convict the hearts. 
Lord, take the message and apply it individually and personally to each one here. And Lord God, help us this evening in Jesus' name.